Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Getting ready to represent Christ to your world today. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning again, everyone. Welcome back to the show. If you missed the first hour, I highly recommend going back to MyFaithRadio.com and listening to that first hour. We had a bit of time with Matt Hawkins before we got cut off by some unfortunate internet disconnections. Matt, it turns out, had experienced a power outage uh, last night in that area. They thought everything would be up and running, but it clearly wasn't. But we had a chance to reflect on some of where we are in life in the church and and some of what's happening today and and reminding ourselves again that God's kingdom is not at all under threat, even if a current version of it seems to be uh, maybe going in, into the dustbin of history in some ways. And so it's incumbent upon us to, to move forward in those ways. I'm always compelled by that great story out of the Old Testament when uh, Josiah, this young king, sort of discovers under the rubble of this fallen kingdom, this book of the law that really was the guide for the, or the early Hebrew faith. And he dusts off the cover and they open it up and things are renewed. I, there's always hope in God's kingdom. And Chris Martin did such a great job talking us through the intersection of social media and the kingdom. And up first in this hour, we're going to talk with Paul AC from PluggedIn.com. And there are so many different movies that we need to talk about as well as some other headlines. So I decided to ask Paul to come in early. We we're chatting off the air about even some shared uh, shared childhood experiences. Good morning, Paul. Good morning. How are you this morning? Well, I was doing pretty well until I saw this headline about Indiana Jones, which it sounds like you and I have some shared childhood history, uh, 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 almost a a sense of awe over the Raiders of the Lost Ark movies that uh, really impacted us. (laughs) And now we have these troubling headlines about Indiana Jones being a predator. But but take us into just sort of what life was like back then. I'm sure many of our listeners remember when these movies came out, Star Wars and Indiana Jones, and just the deep cultural impact they had because they were some of the only movies available. We didn't have the internet. We had to wait two, three years between uh, episodes and series. And and really, America, in a lot of ways, all focused together on some of these movies because there just wasn't as many options. You are absolutely right. It's hard to remember that time, right? And and kids are who kids, people who are under the age of thirty, you know, they just <laughs> have no clue what it was like back in the dark ages. But but when Indiana Jones came out, I was in in elementary school. Uh, it was the biggest deal for a long time. You know, you didn't have these movies that that would immediately go to streaming. You didn't have DVD options. They were just in the theaters. And Indiana Jones, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark played in my movie theater in my town for a solid year. It's amazing. A solid year. And I went to see it probably five times in the theater because I just liked it that much. So when I hear troubling things about Dr. Indiana Jones, it it, it kind of hurts my soul a little bit, you know, because this is these movies become a treasured part of of your childhood in in your upbringing and they and the, in a way this is one of the things that we talk about all the time at at plugged in is that these things can shape us i know that 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 my love for movies my love for indiana jones uh shaped me in in ways both good and bad i think and and so to, <laughs> when you hear headlines that 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 i'm sure we're going to be talking about it it's a little bit traumatizing right 
It is indeed, yeah, because you just you, nobody wants to re- revise their past history because there, there was so much of a, of a sweet time <clears throat> that I think will remain, Paul, even as we talk about maybe some of the difficulties coming up after the break in a minute. Uh, there was some of the sweetness I remember what would be having to stand in line and hoping to get a ticket, right? I remember the line for the movie theater winding around the block as we waited to find out if Vader really was Luke's father. And, <laughs> and you and I talked off air. I had to sort of at least uh, share, share my pain with you that I found out before going to the theater after two long years i found out from two twin fifth uh, fifth graders on the same bus all of the spoilers of return of the jedi after two long years of waiting and i realized i haven't dealt with the pain of spoilers since and so i inflicted upon my kids and i, I tell them you know as old man in the yard and we'll, we'll go through these movies and and we'll finish star wars and they'll want to immediately start empire strikes back and i say we are waiting at least seven hours if not two years before we start the next thing but i think that's my pain speaking paul so thanks for helping me work through that this morning <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You know, one of the things that movies did back then is they taught you patience. I remember waiting around for, for Return of the Jedi. I remember waiting around in line opening weekend because I didn't want those spoilers because you never know who would start talking about it. So <laughs> yes. you just had to get in line. You had to to cough up your money for your ticket. $3.50 back then, I think, and 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 watch the movies. So, I love it. Well, you've been helpful. I, I have officially forgiven Jared and Jason were their names, the twins that wrecked Return of the Jedi. <laughs> Must tell you what the imprint it made if I can remember their names him some 40 years later. We'll be right back, Paul. We'll talk a little bit about Indiana Jones, but also as well, some of the many movies that are coming out direct to streaming. Well, a lot to cover this morning with Paul AC of PluggedIn.com. So we already started some of our conversation. We'll get back to some of the Indiana Jones material in just a second, Paul. But I'd love to get into some of the new material that's just been launched. And uh, the Avengers universe has yet another entry into it. As we've been talking about spoilers, that was maybe one of the times in which uh, it seemed like people really rallied, even in social media, to not allow the events uh, of Infinity War and the end of it to, to be spoiled by the last movie in that series. So we do we do see some evidence people don't like spoilers and and. Maybe without spoilers, we can enter into this new show, Loki, as you've, I'm sure, seen some of it. But but what have you noticed in that that's been both good and then it seems like there's some gender fluidity that maybe is appearing in the show as well? You know, it, it is an interesting thing. Uh, it, it... First off, Loki is the, the third show that uh, that Disney Plus has rolled out that that's based in the in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And the first two entries, I think, were really pretty good, uh, both aesthetically and and not so much from a family friendly perspective. But they weren't horrible. Um, WandaVision obviously took uh, took this romance and threw it back into a weird uh, 1950s to 1990s sitcom world. And it was one of the more creative shows that I've seen. Uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier was a little more typical. Um, when you hit Loki, it has a vibe all of its own. It is it is all about time travel. Owen Wilson also co-stars as this uh, this strange agent, Mobius M. Mobius. And uh, apparently Mobius M. Mobius is trying to track down people who break the rules of the sacred timeline. Loki, uh, at the very, very end, speaking of spoilers, at the very, very end of uh, Avengers Endgame, actually s- escaped his fate, uh, stealing the Tesseract. And so Loki is now officially on the lamb. <laughs> from 
from the what is called the TVA who would track down these these time criminals. Uh, but they need Loki to capture an even worse time criminal. So that's sort of where it sets up. It's it's almost it almost feels like this buddy cop movie. Um but it also has a lot of philosophical ruminations about free will and about salvation. Can a character like Loki be redeemed? Um, it does have some problems, as you alluded to, Peter. You're you're talking about violence, of course. Uh, there's language issues. You also have in in one of the trailers that came forth, you had a, a little bit of a, a paperwork on Loki that that mentioned that he was gender fluid. Uh, this is something that 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 is now officially confirmed in kind of the, the the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Now, in the shows that I've seen, um, that doesn't really come through. If you have to have really close eyes, really good eyes, and you have to be freezing the frame to see those words, from what I've seen, Loki is still the Loki that we've seen in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So there's really no difference there. But it's something that parents should be aware of for sure. Yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting to watch Disney kind of try to walk this line that, you know, probably is financial in terms of its motivation in uh, increasingly trying to celebrate the idea that this is the first uh, official gay character in our canon or this is the first official gender fluid character in our canon. And yet probably the main constituency of, of Disney in terms of who spends money at the parks and, and who's on Disney Plus streaming and all of these um, different kinds of avenues is going are going to be people who would advocate more for the traditional family, traditional stories, and yet they don't want to alienate uh, the LGBTQ community because they're afraid probably of the social media response to all of that. So what, what are you seeing in terms of how Disney is trying to navigate this and in terms of a clear-eyed look at what they're doing? Disney, like almost every other company that is seeking to to earn our entertainment dollars, is is as you say, walking a really fine line. I think we sort of hit a cultural tipping point a year or two ago, where um, to embrace the LBGTQ community is is more of a benefit these companies see uh, than a detriment. Now, is that really the case? I'm not so sure because, as you say, I do think that there are a lot of traditional families out there that that are wary of this sort of content. Uh, but you do find more and more companies, and Disney is one of them, that is pushing farther and farther into this area. Um, is this sort of just a period of our of our time that that will will sort of move back into to some sort of uh, realm of normalcy? I'm I'm not exactly sure. I think that that uh, we are in a very, very interesting time in, in our society where we're just reevaluating um, a lot of the traditional values that we've had for so long um, and looking at them, society is looking at them through a more secular lens. I think that that in a, in a way, you're seeing a lot of of morality, even puritanical morality, but it's coming through a secular lens. And so because of that, those who skew from that lens, um, they can be they can be sort of ostracized a little bit. So it, it makes a very ticklish time, I think, for for families that, that really adhere to a more traditional Christian worldview. Yeah, it certainly gives us some opportunities as we are empowered and equipped as people to handle some of these conversations as sexuality. And, and I know increasingly that is a significant and distinct need to how to shepherd our kids and our grandkids as these things are coming across the screen. So, Paul, maybe one more before we step away for just a moment, and that's the movie Infinite. I saw that flash across my screen and some trailers. I couldn't decide if I was intrigued or not, so tell me if I should be. 
<laughs> well, it is an intriguing movie, but maybe not in the best of ways. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a Mark Wahlberg movie, and it was originally going to get a wide release. Obviously, COVID sort of upended that, and Paramount Plus actually snatched up the rights to this Mark Wahlberg sci-fi thriller. Uh, to me, it reminds me, I don't know if you're familiar with this, Peter, of the old movie Highlander. I the am. Highlander. Yes. So you had in this old movie, you had these immortal beings who would fight against each other and they would chop off each other's heads because that was the only way that they could die. And then they would shout, there can be only one. And and that was sort of what the movie was all about. This movie has this sort of immortal plot. But the but the thing is, these characters do die. But their souls remain alive. They are perpetually reincarnated. Um, and so because of that, because these particular uh, immortals, they call themselves the infinite. They remember all their past lives. It gives them a little bit of a of a superpower type of vibe. Uh, some people have learned how to do some amazing things because of it. Uh, you have two factions that are fighting, essentially. You have uh, the good infinite, who call themselves the believers, uh, who are working for the betterment of mankind. You have the nihilists who want to destroy all of mankind because they're sick of being reincarnated all the time. Uh, and Mark Wahlberg plays this character who is infinite, but he doesn't know it. And inside his little noggin is the secret to a doomsday device that could destroy the world as we know it. <laughs> of course uh, there is, yes. <laughs> of course. It is it is frankly a, a little bit ludicrous. <laughs> the movie. Yes. It really is one of those those movies that that tries to do a lot of different things. Um, but man, there are some really f strange inconsistencies. You know, these these there's one couple that that is perpetually reincarnated and they meet at the very same place every single version of their lives so they can you know can reunite and 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 rekindle their romance, but. I was just thinking these memories are stirred up when they're teens. Where where are their parents that they're <laughs> zipping off to Angkor Wat to meet every single lifetime? That just doesn't seem right. So it's just little things like that 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 made me give gave me pause as I was watching this movie. Of course, when you're talking about a Walt, Mark Wahlberg movie uh, that's a that's a thriller, you're going to be talking about a lot of violence. Uh, there's quite a bit of language to be worried about, um, and and for for a lot of families, I think that the spiritual issues, the reincarnation, could be a stumbling block as well. So it's an interesting movie. I had fun reviewing it, uh, but I tend to like reviewing bad movies because they just make for, for funner reviews. <laughs> well, it sure sounds like my intrigue was very well misplaced. I appreciate you helping me understand what's going on in the movie. I, I confess that I had a craving for some movie theater popcorn. It had been so long, so I, I, so I did wrestle my way through King Kong and Godzilla recently, but I'm not going to go back to the theater for this one, for the, for the popcorn or any of the other movies <laughs> we're talking about. Well, step away for a second, Paul. We've got a lot more movies to talk about, including a, a perspective that I want to get from you on In the Heights, and then we will look a little bit more closely at some of the history of Indiana Jones. It is about 22 minutes past the top of the hour. We're chatting with Paul AC from PluggedIn.com about some of the different media releases and what we can pay attention to as we maybe work our way through. And Paul, tell me what I'm seeing here in this movie, In the Heights. 
Well, you are seeing uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda's newest uh, newest Broadway production turn to the screen, actually. As, as you know, probably, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda is the genius behind Hamilton, which right. broke all sorts of records on Broadway. Uh, it's It was a very, very unusual, bra- groundbreaking musical, essentially, uh, that tied quite a bit of history, actual history within its folds, which uh, kind of surprised me when I watched it. In the Heights is not is not a historical show, uh, but it is a musical in sort of that Miranda tradition uh, in in that it has, it's very clever, it's very upbeat. uh, People sing, dance, rap all the way through it. And it takes place in the Washington Heights neighborhood of New York City. It's a a Latino immigrant community. um, And we just see a lot of characters going through their everyday lives. They're, they're, They're working, they're trying to figure out how to pay rent as the as the neighborhood around them slowly gentrifies, uh, they're they're dreaming big. They're thinking about what they want to do in the future. Uh, you have one character going to Stanford, another one wants to return to the Dominican Republic to to rebuild his old house. So you have these big big dreams uh, juxtaposed against the everyday reality of the neighborhood, um, and it has some very nice messages actually about about friendship, about family. Family, about hard work, uh, which I found really compelling. It does have some problems, um, as as I think most Lin Manuel Miranda movies have. You know, I think that you have to to, to deal with a little bit of language here yeah. uh, because of of the community that that we're set up. We have a lot of we have a lot of Latino style dancing, which can look pretty sensual at times. Um, you have some coupling. The, there's some allusions to to some some sensual activities, some infidelity, uh, and you do see a very brief glimpse of a same-sex couple as well. Um, but the messages and the music can make this a really strong contender. It's actually playing on HBO Max and in theaters. Uh, it's a PG-13 movie, and that feels about right to me. Um, the the language isn't as harsh as it was in the original Hamilton, but but this is probably a teen movie. This is for teens on up, I would say. Um, so it does have some issues, but but thematically, I do think it hits some some strong heights. No, that's helpful. He's uh, obviously been quite the prominent uh, musician, composer, all of the above. So it's interesting to see his work continue in this. Appreciate that review. We just have a couple minutes left, Paul. So I don't want to dive too deeply into the Indiana Jones situation. Other than that, there's a suggestion that looking back at some of the movies and some of what happened back in that time, that uh, there is obviously quite a bit of inappropriate sexuality displayed on the screen. And, and that's evidence in the Raiders in the, uh, of the Lost Ark movies. And I'm curious to just get your thoughts about what happens when something that has been a treasured part of our lives and new revelations maybe come out or new perspectives come out that kind of change that. Can we remain grateful for what actually was authentic in it while we're also wrestling authentically again with what was maybe troubling. I think about people that have families where maybe revelations come out later. Uh, do, do we have to swap one for the other? Does it have to be a binary choice or can we be grateful for what was real and good and also be clear eyed about what wasn't? Yeah, I, I think that that's absolutely right on. I think that you can embrace both, honestly, uh, because we do it with the people in our lives all the time. We know that the people in our lives often can disappoint us. 
We know that that perhaps our, our mothers or fathers were not as perfect as we once imagined them to be. We know that our friends have their own flaws, their own failings. We know that our children um, have their own flaws. And, and, and because of that, um, we live with the tension of the good and the not so good in, in all of our lives, right? Um, when we talk about entertainment, it becomes so precious and so important to us in, in so many ways um, that it becomes almost like a relationship. We have a relationship with these things that, that, that we, we embrace. And because of that, I think we have to learn to balance the good with the bad. We, can, we need to be able to say, this is wrong, this is horrible, this is not right. But I don't think that that means that we have to to then say Raiders of the Lost Ark is not worth seeing or to downplay the influence that it had in our lives or to say that that the opening sequence in Raiders of the Lost Ark is not the most brilliant sequence in the <laughs> opening sequence in the history of cinema. You know, it's, right. it's one of those things where we have to be able to do both. And that's a very tricky spot to be in. But I think we have to learn to do it. Mm. Well, Paul, we covered a lot of ground this morning. Thanks for joining us a little bit early. Thanks for talking us through a lot of these releases as sort of media is coming back to the fore as the pandemic is still certainly with us, but isn't uh, quite as extreme as it was when it first started. So just appreciate the wisdom and the insight on all of these different movies. I know PluggedIn.com is my go-to site before I start watching some things with my kids. So thanks for all the work that you do. Hey, thanks so much, Peter. Appreciate it. We'll preview what's coming up next here in the last half of this hour on Mornings Without Carmen. Well, up next, we will be joined by Tom Lin, who is the CEO of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. It's an organization I'm sure many of you listening this morning are familiar with. They've made quite an impact over the years with young people. I know some members of my extended family have been deeply involved in InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and uh, a lot of lives of following Jesus started just in this place. Tom has a, a frontline view of the next generation, and obviously we've been talking a lot this week about the future of the church and I often reference the idea that uh, hopefully the next generation will be sort of the Josiah generation. And I tell my young people that in class all the time, that to rediscover the metaphorical but very real book of the law. It obviously was a real book in the in the Old Testament and using it as a metaphor now. Like, what is the reality of the kingdom that we need to rediscover to be able to move forward? And Tom will give us some great insights on that next year, so stay with us. This is Max Licato. Brian Reed served in a military unit in Baghdad, Iraq in the fall of 2003. He and his unit went on regular street patrols to protect neighborhoods and build peace. It was often a thankless, fruitless assignment. Brian said his unit battled low morale daily. An exception came in the form of a church service his men stumbled upon. It was filled with Arabic-speaking Coptic Christians who invited the soldiers to partake in the Lord's Supper with them. Brian wrote, Celebrating the Lord's Supper and remembering Jesus' sacrifice for our sins was the most important bridge builder and wall destroyer we could have experienced. Opposite use, brought together by the cross of Christ. This is Max Locato, and this is How Happiness Happens.
So glad to be inviting Tom Lynn, the CEO of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, into the program this morning. Tom, we started our conversation a few minutes ago off the air. kind of wish we had been on the air. I appreciate already the perspective that you have related to the next generation. Good morning. Good morning, Peter. Good to be with you. Yeah, you too. I think we share and, and are fortunate to share being in the lives of young people and sort of seeing what's there. And, and maybe as a way to get started before we get into some of the challenges young people are facing, specifically with issues of mental health and anxiety and, and just trying to navigate a very uncertain future in our world. Working with them, it's, it's unfortunate sometimes that Gen Z or even f- future generations get painted with a real broad brushstroke uh, of different kinds, perhaps, when, when you're with young people individually. There's a passion and an earnestness and a desire and, and a, a, a want to be shepherded on behalf of the kingdom, and, and that's what I, I'm seeing. I don't know if that's what you're seeing as well. I am. I think I'm seeing both uh, from the standpoint of non-believing students, students who don't have a church background at all, in which you know I think many of us think about these days. A lot of people are unchurched, but that gives opportunity for them to hear the gospel for the first time. They're very open. Uh, we see people asking spiritual questions, as, as you, t- you mentioned, mental health issues, issues about purpose in life and what am I doing and what does this all mean? People are open to the gospel more than ever before. And then with the Christian students, so well equipped with all the tools of the day and age that we're in to change the world and impact the kingdom, uh, do things for Christ. So I am encouraged, and I'll just say we're seeing that in our organization at InterVarsity Christian Fellowship as well. Yeah, well, I know you've been around with young people for a while, too, and it's it's still a newish phenomenon. It certainly has been with us for a while in the context of our lives, but in the context of Christian history, it's a newish phenomenon to see the significant rise of things like depression and anxiety, suicide rates, these kinds of things. I know from teaching back in 2002, 3, 4, 5, that at that time there are very few students that maybe articulate a sense of depression and anxiety, and it's sort of shot through the roof over the last 15 years, and then we poured gas on the fire with this global pandemic and all of what's, navi- what's being navigated there. So kind of take us into the mindset of the young person, how they're experiencing the world in the midst of all of this uncertainty. Yeah, well, as, as has been documented and a lot of us know, uh, depression is huge. Uh, I think seven out of 10 Gen Z students report symptoms of depression. You know, colleges and universities are struggling to try to keep up their, their resources on campus, cannot meet the demand that students have, uh, suicide rates that are an all-time high. I think there's something like a 35% increase uh, prior to COVID uh, in, in the last, in a 10-year period of history. Um, I think as a result, students are, you know, two things are happening. They're longing for guidance, spiritual guidance, mental health guidance, guidance in general. They're willing to seek it, which is wonderful, right? Spiritual guidance, imagine people saying, I really need help with my spiritual health or mm. spiritual guidance. Um, and then you have this interesting need for community, yet ill-equipped to kind of you know socialize in person. They're less equipped, right? So this, they're lonely, yet they don't know how to make relationships. Um, so you have this interesting phenomenon. So it's a challenge. They're, they're struggling with their mental health, wanting community, wanting this kind of help, yet not knowing how to do it exactly, how to build relationships and build community. Do you see ties, Tom, between those those two dynamics in terms of the quality of our relationships that we have in our lives and the reduction or the rise of anxiety, depending on the quality of those relationships? They seem to be sharing the same space together. I do. I think that there's a, um, you know, when there's, uh, I, you know, the COVID has definitely, this COVID, this pandemic year has shown a lot of it. I think when we're in isolation, we're not built for isolation. God didn't build 
his people, didn't create his people to be isolated people. We're built for a relationship. When we don't have that relationship, when we don't have relationships with other people, with brothers and sisters, with people, uh, it affects us. It affects, that's part of what's really impacting our mental health. And so for young people, what do you begin to counsel them in? And because this is, we, we've talked a lot about what maybe some of the, the current issues are in the church, and, and certainly lack of relationship can be seen among them. But the harder work sometimes is to identify, so, so what does it look like moving forward? And I know our, our kids are, are split apart by social media so often, and just in the sense that they have these virtual relationships, uh, as well as maybe mobility, our ability to travel much longer distances and shorter periods of time the last 20 years has created friendships that can be 30, 40, 50 miles away from each other. We have destination churches. Some of these ideas, do you see a role of getting back to more of a simpler geographic proximity that at least might help facilitate some of these relationships? Uh, we do. I mean, certainly, uh, I would acknowledge, especially during the pandemic year, you know, we did find ways to create a virtual community, to find community, create community that is spread apart, where your friends are all over the country and you gather together to worship virtually, you gather together in Bible study virtually. But having said that, I, I think there's something about embodied incarnational community. When you're together in person with a group of 20, 10, you know, 50 other students, there's something about it that uh, feeds the soul. Um, there's something about gathering around the scriptures in a small group in person where you're able, able to interact around God's word together that really is, is, is not the same, is much better, I would say, than the limitations of some of what you can do virtually. Again, there's things you can do virtually, there's things you can do spread apart, but I, this embodied incarnational community is is critical. And, and, you know, we see that in Scripture, the way Jesus appeared incarnationally, interacting in this world, uh, did something, touched people's lives in a way that I think we believe in our ministry, too, that in an incarnational embodied community on campus, something where you, sh- you share the Scriptures or you interact with people in your dormitories, in, in the dining halls, or something that, that, that can't be replaced. Yeah, I know some young people that moved onto campus at a local university here where I teach, University of Northwestern St. Paul, and the friendships weren't always the easiest to make, but boy, once they were made, there there just seemed to be a, a different kind of life that becomes present as a result of, I think you said aptly, an embodied relationship like that. Tom, we got a lot more that we can cover in terms of life in the church moving forward, and I want to ask several questions related to the expressions of the church for young people and for all of us, quite frankly, that are dealing kind of with the rubble in which we live. How can we live life out as the church, as the people of God following Jesus, sort of into the future as we pick up the pieces moving forward? So stay with us. More to come here on Mornings Without Carmen. We're chatting with Tom Lynn of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. It is 12 minutes before the top of the hour. We're chatting with Tom Lynn from InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, who is at ground zero with the next generation and, and experiencing in many ways what they're experiencing. And Tom, again, off the air and both on the air, we've been chatting a little bit about the rubble in which we live, but there's always hope in the future. And if we define the church as the people of God following Jesus and, and being empowered by the Spirit to bear witness in the world, that that is the church, at least according to the biblical standpoint, it's not necessarily a specific building with a steeple and a sign and a website and a sermon. It really is the people that in, in whom the Spirit dwells. You have a statement in part of my show notes even this morning that why it's more important now than ever 
to redirect students back to the church. And part of what you and I were chatting about is that young people are often ambivalent at best and uh, completely against the idea of going back to the institutional church as it exists because of their perceptions of the hypocrisies and the failures and, and all of that. So in, in light of that, if we redefine the church and, and, and understand it to be the people of God following Jesus, what are you seeing as maybe some of the ways we can express this life moving together as we try to rebuild and reconstruct what the kingdom is about? Yeah, great question. First, just to reiterate uh, that initial point you said, it is it is a challenging time. It's, it's uh, you know, when we look at the statistics of this generation, um, the need is great. There's, there's a need to redirect them to the church. 35% of Gen Z students are atheists, agnostic, have no religious belief. Um, only 30% of Americans have a positive perception of evangelical Christians. Um, so it, it's, you know, not very attractive, you could say, for the average college student to engage in the church, uh, to at least in the institutional church. Um, so as I think about ways to um, attract or engage this generation and how, how do we engage them well, um, a few things come to mind and a few things we're seeing. First is, um, how is the church beautiful? So I just use that word beauty intentionally, or how is the gospel beautiful? As wrestling with that question, that's an important one for this generation. You know, when we think about the millennial generation, slightly older generation, they ask the question, how is the church good, or or how is the gospel good? They, they were more concerned about changing the world and, and working for the common good and seeing how, you know, how the gospel affected the common good. Uh, my generation was a Gen X. We asked the question, how is the gospel real or authentic? That's the Gen Xers cared about. They wanted to see a church that's really authentic and vulnerable and real. And of course, the boomers asked, you know, well, how is the gospel true? The truth of the gospel. They wanted to see how truth was debated in the church per se. So, so going back to college students, beauty, a beautiful church. So we have a lot in the church today that looks, frankly, ugly to them. They look at the ways the church has responded to things in this past year, whether it's the pandemic or uh, tough racial issues or other societal issues that are really difficult for the church to wrestle with. And and I think going back to how is the church beautiful? How can we wrestle with these issues in a humble way and demonstrate the beauty of the gospel. That's something that I've been reflecting on and I think we need to do if we want to reach this generation. Yeah, that's an intriguing thought, Tom, about the idea of beauty and having a robust theology of beauty. I don't know if in your reflections, and I know some of these things can be sort of rough drafty and we're trying to get our head around some stuff, but do you have any some, some specific examples of how that beauty can manifest itself among the people of God? Yeah, I think um, you know we're we're seeing the effectiveness of art, for example, how um, art uh, can engage students with the gospel. Um, I see in my own kids, if you think about um, something like an Instagram page and how the aesthetic of how um, you know what they're posting or how it looks, they're, they're everything they're attracted this kind of beauty. And so um, when when I see pictures of the church for for my kids or students, I want to see. And I'm not talking about, you know, a nice, expensive-looking building or something. I'm seeing the people, they see the people, when they see the people of God, this beauty manifested, the beauty of Christ manifested, the beauty in our action. There's something beautiful about the way we serve the poor, that we interact with those needs, that we lift up those who are downtrodden, that we bring hope to the hopeless. 
there's something about wanting to see that. And again, practically art, we see that in one of these, but I think the way that we live our lives and live our relationships. Yeah, those are some really interesting perceptions about what could maybe help in some ways in some real practical ways. I think about the times that maybe I've been in Europe or I grew up in a certain kind of church tradition where they still had the stories of the scriptures on stained glass windows. And the reason why they did that back then, as I'm sure you know, and many of our listeners do too, is there was a substantial biblical illiteracy and a lack of access to the biblical stories. And so people that weren't able to read and and weren't able to have access otherwise could follow the stories visually in some of these beautiful representations of the stained glass windows. And I'm I'm not advocating going back to stained glass windows, but (laughs) I have watched uh, some young people that I know respond incredibly well to a really well-done Christian show like The Chosen. It's not perfect, of course, as no show is, but they respond really well in this art that's visually represented in front of them, or maybe Andrew Peterson and the Wing Feather Saga. Some of these stories can really help in some different ways bringing the perspective of the kingdom into their lives. Amen. Uh, you know, you just mentioned The Chosen, and I've been showing that to my kids. And I'll tell you, I've talked to so many families that are watching The Chosen and how the gospel is represented there. And they're crying when they watch yeah. these shows, right? You probably cried. I cried when I, I totally watched did. that show. <laughs> yes. yeah. So they're saying, in the stained glass windows, you know, I'm sure you're seeing too, I see students on campus more and more going to actually attracted to churches with liturgy, with sort of traditional buildings that, you know, when I, as a Gen Xer, I, I was attracted to going to, you know, fancy churches and coffee, sh- coffee houses, you know, and, but there's this, this, these stained glass windows, these kinds of buildings, there's something about the attraction to this deep liturgy, this connecting with God in this way, in this place of beauty. That's quite interesting, I think. Yeah, that's. I did absolutely cry at the first episode of The Chosen. I'd heard about it. I sat down with some initial skepticism that, that Christian media would be well done in some ways, just based on some other experiences. But I literally gasped and put my hand to my mouth at the end of the first episode when Jesus interfaced with Mary Magdalene in the way that he did, and I began to cry. <laughs> so it, I think it's a really uh, great spot of intersection there. We just have a couple minutes left, Tom. I, in, t- in talking about communion and, and the importance of a good sermon and teaching is so important. And I'm somebody who's given a lot of sermons, and I value that. But that's still a fairly recent development in the church where the service centers around the sermon. For the first 1,500 years, it was the communion table that centered the people of faith. Is there something maybe in a robust theology of communion that could help along the way here, too? You know, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, I, I do think there is something about—I um, would say something about communion that's, you know— uh, remembering the roots of communion, not about the institution of the church offering it, and there's right. something about, well, this is the right of the church, and we need to do that. But yeah, something about breaking bread together, again, there's that communal doing it together uh, need of this generation. Um, I, I was I was going to say that I thought there's, there's something about the Word of God as well, kind of, kind of uh, looking and gathering around the Word of God together. Yes. Um, that I think equally powerful and thinking about um, not just studying the scriptures on my own or on my Bible app, but something about gathering together on holy ground when we come around the scriptures that's still so powerful today, even for this generation. Yeah, it really is. It is indeed a God-breathed text, and I can't think of a single time when the scriptures are rightly divided that I'm not cut to the quick by them and all the beautiful ways that we need to be cut to the quick. So I think spot on. You appreciate just even some of the suggestions about how we can recapture a future out of the rubble here in which we're moving, because we'll continue to maintain and say over and over again, Jesus' kingdom is sovereign. It's going to remain. It's going to to go into the end. It is not under threat. So thanks for all the work that you're doing, Tom. Thank you, Peter. It's great to be with you. Yeah, I just 
just hopeful for this generation and hope that many will continue to pray for college students in this generation. Yeah, definitely needed. Thanks again. And, and just keep doing the work you're doing. We're all in it together. Well, we'll take a short break and wrap up our show here for the 11th of June on Mornings Without Carmen. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for today. So I sure love people like Tom Lynn, who are on the front lines of just the institutional church, both in our current generation, the next generation, the generations uh, across the board. And when we talk about the next generation, it is not at the expense of perhaps my generation or your generation. Uh, wherever we all are, we all need to be walking out life in the kingdom. We have different needs. We have different thoughts. We have different realities as part of our life. And it's part of what I love about, Paul, just the show that you put together, Morning In and Morning Out. There's a variety of guests to kind of intersect our lives in a, in a bunch of different ways. It is. And... Each of them, I hope, are just giving us a fresh perspective, a new way of looking at things, because as you were talking, as this current expression of Christianity is struggling, what new institutions, what new expressions or reforms of institutions will happen that will continue to support the organic church? I love it. As we head into the weekend, remember the Great Commission. All authority has been given to me, says Jesus, on heaven, in heaven, and on earth. His kingdom is not under threat. Continue to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We'll catch you next Monday, everybody. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.